All right, y'all, we're back in it after a little bit of a hiatus. It's been a minute, um, but it's good to be here together. So let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for setting apart this day for us to dedicate to uh, intentionally focusing and worshiping you. And uh, we just thank you for coming through again and again in surprising ways, the way you're bringing your church together, the way you are fostering unity among us in our hearts. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to use your spirit to drive us closer and closer together, especially when we start feeling pain or insecurity, to always find our rest in you and to always rest our hopes and our dreams and our ambitions on the work that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished for us on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I apologize for kind of the scrambledness of today's service. It was kind of last minute because we went to Dallas and then we came straight here uh, after the service in the Dallas church. And so we're just trying to catch up. But we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. And we are in Acts chapter 7. We're still in Acts chapter 7. We haven't gotten to uh, double digits. But we're going to finish this series at some point, hopefully. Uh, last time we talked, uh, if you guys were here... I'm not sure if anyone here was here for that last one, but it was about apostolic leadership in the church, the purpose of it and the result of it. So remember, we talked about um, the first deacons being chosen to serve food to the Greek widows who were missing out on the distribution of food, and one of those deacons was a man named Stephen. So you guys weren't here, so let me just kind of quickly recap, right? So the Spirit of God comes down upon the church, right? Jesus ascends to heaven. And he says, wait in Jerusalem because you're going to be out witnesses to the rest of the world, starting in Jerusalem, that I am now really the risen king of the world. And that everyone should acknowledge me as the ruler of the world. That's what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that everyone else, all the other competing powers, religions, emperors are not. And the spirit of God is poured out upon the early church, the first 120 so believers. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon of the church. And basically what Peter is saying in that sermon is that all of these different prophecies, prophecies of the renewal of Israel, of a new David coming, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that when Jesus came, when God himself appeared in the flesh, what did we do? What did we, the people of God, do, the Jews? What did we do to him? We killed him. We handed him over to the Romans and killed him. But God showed that he really was the true ruler of the world by raising him up from the dead. And now all of us, and so when he preaches that to the people, everyone says, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, repent, believe the gospel, and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Turn away from the old way of life you had, and now believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so... 3,000 people that day were baptized, the church grows, and so as we continue throughout the book of Acts, we see that the church keeps growing. There continues to be more and more opposition, especially from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish council, it's called the Sanhedrin. And now, as the church grows, last time we talked, Acts chapter 6, there started to be tensions within the church. Like, that's predictable, right? It should actually be comforting to us to know even in the first early church there were problems. What were the problems? They're kind of predictable, right? There were Greek-speaking Jews, and there were Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking Jews kind of came in from all over the Roman, eastern half of the Roman Empire. They were in Jerusalem when they started to believe the gospel, and they were staying with the church. But they started feeling like they were left out of leadership. 
Their widows weren't getting food in the distribution of food. Earlier on, remember, we, we heard how the apostles are sharing all their wealth. They're, um, they're making sure that the poor are taken care of. Well, the Greek-speaking Jews started feeling like, hey, our widows are not being taken care of. They're not left in. So the, the apostles pray about it, and they appoint new deacons to specifically minister for the distribution of food. And what's interesting that we talked about last time was that the names of all those deacons were Greek. And so it's showing how racial reconciliation was happening. I mean, these, this is not exactly racial. It's more linguistic. It's a little different for us. It's kind of like uh, American-born Malayalis and Malayalis from India. And they're culturally very different, right? And language, like I can barely speak any Malayalam. I can barely say the language. Uh, but the ones coming from India, they're totally fluent and they can barely speak any English. How can we be one church? That's what Acts chapter 6 was. And one of the deacons chosen was this guy named Stephen. Stephen is a Greek name. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. And he was going out to the Greek-speaking synagogues, the Jewish places of study and worship. And he was teaching to them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Messiah that's been promised in the Old Testament. And these Jews were really offended, and they're arguing back with him. But, G- but Stephen had such a grace of God upon him that he was able to answer every single uh, rebuttal. He's doing signs and wonders, uh, and he's testifying to the lordship of Jesus. And in the course of doing that, uh, these Greek-speaking Jews get really offended. He angers them because he's having a good response to everything they're saying. So at the end of Acts chapter 6, some people who are very offended by what Stephen is saying trap him like basically kidnap him and take him by force before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the ruling council of Jerusalem, right? And so that's near the temple. And there he is accused of saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and abolish the laws of Moses. And we're going to talk about why that's important. Uh, And at the end, everyone looks at Stephen intently. This is the end of chapter 6. Everyone is looking at Stephen intently and his face is shining like the face of an angel. And we talked about that last time too, talking about how one of the truths that the church teaches us is that when you become a Christian believer, you are the new temple because the spirit of God dwells within you. And so that idea of Stephen's face shining like an angel, it's kind of a sign. It's a, a little foretaste of the fact that now the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, is in our physical bodies, which is a pretty amazing uh, testimony about us. Okay, so that's what we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 7, and this chapter is actually 60 verses long. So I'm betting that if you ever actually read it, you did not read it closely. I'm actually going to read the whole thing to you, which is maybe an ambitious thing to do because you, your mind might wander. But really try and listen and feel the force of these words from Scripture. Put yourself into the story. Because that's the only way that this is going to touch you. Like, my words don't matter. Scripture's words are powerful. Put yourself in the scene. There's a mob of angry people at the temple in front of the learned Jewish rulers with their long beards and and the scribes and the elders and priests, and all of them are arranged, and Stephen is standing in front of them. What, actually, when you think of that picture, what should that remind you of? An angry mob, Jewish elders, one man standing accused in front of them. That should remind you of Jesus. That's a picture of what Jesus looked like. And what Jesus looked like is now what Stephen is looking like. That's, that's a hint of what the lesson is for us. But let's begin with verse 1. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, are these things so? So remember, end of Acts chapter 6, the accusation is, Stephen said, Jesus is going to destroy the Jewish temple and that he wants to abolish 
the laws of Moses. So are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him move from there to this country in which you're now living. But God did not give any of it to him as inheritance, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though Abraham had no child. And God spoke in these terms that Abraham's descendants would be resident aliens, immigrants, in a country belonging to others, who would enslave them and mistreat them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with Joseph and rescued him from all his oppression and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now a famine came throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering, and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there, as well as our ancestors. And their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king, who had not known Joseph, ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their babies so that they would die. At the time Moses was born and he was beautiful before God. For three months he was brought up in his father's house. And when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in words and deeds. When Moses was 40 years old, he, it came into his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his people would understand that God, through him, was rescuing them, but they did not understand. The next day he came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed, pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an immigrant in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to quake 
and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people, as he raised me up. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make gods for us who will lead the way for us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. At this time, they made a golden calf, offered a sacrifice to this idol, and reveled in the work of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to, the worship, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slain victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephaim, the images that you made to worship, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness, as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David, who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in a house made with human hands. For as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by the angels, but you have not kept it. When the Jewish people heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Okay, so I know that was a lot. That was 60 verses. Thank you for staying with me. What's going on here? Well, remember the central accusation, right? Stephen's accused of saying Jesus is going to return and abolish the laws of Moses and destroy the temple. But did you see in any of those 60 verses if Stephen answered that accusation? Did he give a yes or a no? It's kind of confusing, right? Stephen goes into this long speech 
for basically 60 verses where he's telling the entire story of the Old Testament. Did you catch that? He's starting with the father of Israel, Abraham, and he talks about his story. Then he talks about Joseph. Then he talks about Moses. Then he talks about Joshua. Then he talks about the sins of the people of Israel. He talks about uh, David, and he talks about Solomon, and he talks about the temple. How is this related to the accusation that Stephen has? Why does he go into saying this? And this is one, one of the hardest things that I might have to explain to you, but it's central about Christianity. This is something you really have to understand. Christianity is less an idea to be believed than a story to be entered into and lived. Does that make sense? Like, it's less an idea to be believed, and yet, instead, it's more of a story that has to be accepted as the true story that makes sense of the entire world. So if you don't understand the big story of the Bible, you're not going to understand Stephen's answer. And so one of the problems for us when it comes to understanding the gospel is that we are unfamiliar with the big story of the Bible. We're unfamiliar with how Abraham, like how every single book is all pointing to Jesus. How Abraham is connected to Israel, is connected to David, is connected to Jesus Christ, who brings this amazing resolution. And if we don't understand that story, then the cross doesn't make as much sense to it. We abstract the cross away from the story and try to understand what the cross means. And yet, the, the, the cross only makes sense within the story. Does that make sense? So like, for example, who here has watched How I Met Your Mother, the show? All right, if I say blue French horn, do you know what I'm talking about? But if I was just walking around and saying blue French horn, blue French, people would think I was crazy. They would have no understanding what I'm talking about. The idea of the blue French horn, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes Fred, um, Ted, not Fred, Ted and Robin's relationship, right? But that idea only makes sense in the context of a story. In the same way, if you try to understand the cross and the resurrection and the gospel and the meaning of what Jesus is doing apart from the story, you're not going to get it. And that's why what Stephen has to do is he has to retell the story of Israel to show them, to show the Jewish people, because they already have had an idea of how that story all made sense. He has to retell that story to them so that it makes sense now only with the resolution in Jesus. So that's kind of the big picture point I want you to take away from this. So if our, if our lives were shaped by the story of God found in the Bible, then even the simplistic Sunday school answer, what does the cross mean? It means that Jesus loved and died for me. Even that simplistic answer, if we were totally shaped by the story of God in the Bible, that answer would reduce us to tears because it would actually make sense to us. But instead we abstract it away and so it just means like this personal thing and it doesn't really affect us that much. We don't really think about it that much. It doesn't affect the way we live. It doesn't order the way that we see the world. And the reason I, I would submit that it doesn't move us is because we don't really understand. We don't really get it. And that's part of what we're trying to do with this series. I'm trying to get you to be embedded in the story of the book of Acts. Because stories are central to shaping our identity. So if every waking moment, like you are always checking your Snapchat stories. I started Snapchatting more this weekend because I was with Ubi. Uh, he brings that out in me. But uh, if, if you're always, I noticed, like, as I was going through Snapchat stories, I, I kept on being like, man, these people have such an amazing life. They're doing so, like, such funny things or cool things. I want to do that, too. So if, if, if living for Snapchat, I'm not saying that's what you guys are living for, but if living for Snapchat was the thing that I was doing, what would that be shaping me into? It would shape me into a person who's always anxious, like afraid of missing out. It would shape me into a person who's envious of people who seem to be living 
funner lives than I am in the 15 seconds I can see of their lives. And it, it makes me into a person who wants to chase these great snap-worthy moments so people will think I'm living this amazing life, even though I'm probably curating it and telling I'll be deposed and, and stuff like that. Um, or take the American dream. That's the immigrant story, right? That's the story so many of us have lived out. Our parents come over here and they sacrifice so much for us and worked so hard for us to get good educations. And so we feel really guilty and we put this burden on us like we have to make something of ourselves to give meaning to their sacrifice. And, and so we want to become doctors and lawyers and engineers and buy nice houses and be financially well off. That's a story. And marry a good, I don't know, Malayali boy or girl, um, girls for all of you, hopefully. Uh, but, but that's the central story shaping our lives, our identities. So what happens when that doesn't work out? We're crushed because that's an identity issue. And in the same way, the point I'm trying to get to is that the Jews had a central story about themselves, right? The Americans have a central story about themselves. Like every nation has a central story about themselves. What's the American story? It's about the revolution. It's about, um, you know, the Civil War, all these great moments in uh, American history that kind of give Americans... We, it gives us Americans a sense that we have a special destiny, right? That's the American story, American exceptionalism. Uh, there's a story that those folks, like the white folks in Charlottesville, believed about themselves. That's the white race that needs to be supreme, right? And it's under the threat, it's under attack, so we need to go out and defend the white race. That's the story they were told. They're feeling threatened, and so they act on it. The Jews have the same story. And the reason why Stephen is in such a dangerous place is the same reason Jesus was in this dangerous place. He's challenging that national story and saying that actually it's a lie. And the only true story is the one that's lived out by Jesus Christ. And that's going to mess with people. That's going to make them angry. That's the reason why a lot of these like, white supremacists people are angry. The country is changing. Demographically, it's changing. It's becoming browner as it gets younger, the younger generation. Um, it's becoming more Latino, Asian, black. Uh, so it's not just white people. And so people feel threatened by that. And that makes them violent. So that explains some of the anger toward what Stephen is saying. Because the Jews believed that they were God's chosen people who were set apart for God's holy purposes. And just like with Stephen's speech, that's a story that really begins with Abraham in Genesis. It's a story of how God, crea God created a good world, but the world went wrong be because of sin. And so now a good God has to somehow rescue the world from sin. But who are the causes of sin? You and me, right? That's the story of the flood. God's like, okay, well, in order to rescue the world, maybe I should just wipe out humankind. But God instead says, no, I'm going to preserve humankind. I'm going to work with humankind in order to save it. I'm going to find a way to destroy sin without destroying all of humanity. That's the good, what the good God is doing. And so he calls Abraham, and he promises that through Abraham's descendants, he's going to bless all the world. That's in Genesis chapter 12. And that's the central promise that animates all of Jewish identity. They are God's chosen people set apart for his purposes, and through them, the world will be blessed. So that's why Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, are given the law by Moses at Mount Sinai. Notice, it's not that follow these rules and then you'll be my people. That's not what happens. God rescues the people, says, you already are my people. This is the way you're supposed to live to continue being my people. Do you get that? Like this law sets you apart. Instead of being a people of child sacrifice, you're just going to do animal sacrifice. You're not going to be like that. Instead of being a people who oppress the poor, you're going to make provision for the poor and the immigrants and the widows. You're going to be different from all the other nations around you. That's what the law was for. And as 
that happens as they have this sense of themselves as, as a people set apart from the rest of the world in order to bless the world, they have the sense that God is with them. And that's why David, which Stephen talks about, David dreams of building a temple for God in Jerusalem, a dream that's fulfilled by David's son Solomon. And David knows that the creator God can't actually physically dwell in a temple. That's one of those uh, prophets that was quoted. It says, heaven is uh, my throne, earth is my footstool. How can I live in a human house? Uh, but David knows that. But David wants to create a, the temple as a sign and a symbol that God's special favor and blessing rests on Israel, that Israel is set apart. It's a chosen nation. So the law, Moses' law, and Solomon's temple, these are the two main elements of Jewish identity that set them apart as their own people. Like for Americans, it would be the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, right? Those are the two main things. And remember, the Jews are the remnant of Israel. They're the the, um, people who came back from exile. Uh, So that's why it's a huge deal when Stephen is accused of preaching that Jesus is going to destroy the law and destroy the temple, right? Because it basically sounds like he's saying Jesus is going to destroy Jewish identity. Um, And this is why Stephen can't just give a simple yes or no to the accusation. He can't just say, yes, Jesus is going to destroy the law in the temple, because that's not what Jesus is coming to do. But he also can't say, no, Jesus won't destroy the law in the temple, because he needs to explain that Jesus is saying that the law and the temple are actually not central. Like, to the Jews, they are central, but actually, Stephen is trying to say they've always been pointing to something that is central, which is Jesus. Uh, So that's why Stephen went into this lengthy 60-verse explanation. And And Stephen ends his speech with a counter-accusation that the Jews who built, and this is what really makes the Jews angry at him, Stephen's accusation is that the Jews who built the law and temple up, they've built it up as so central to their identity that they have made the law and temple into idols, and that those idols blinded them to when God actually visited them through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who himself was the true bearer of all of Moses' promises to bless the world. Does that make sense? So that's, that's kind of what Stephen was doing with that whole 60 verses. He's saying Abraham's promise was true. The law and the temple were good things, but they were always signs pointing to Jesus. And what you Jews have done is you've made the law and the temple, which are good things, into ultimate things. And any time good things become ultimate things, they become idols that block our view of God. It's like the eclipse, right? You can't see the sun because the moon is in the way. So you're blocked from seeing God. And that's what idols have become. And so the the law and the temples have become idols. And that's what upsets the Jews when they hear it. So this is what, that's uh, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. The Jews rejected their own God-appointed deliverer. And this is another theme that was running through uh, Stephen's story that he was telling them, right? So Joseph rejected by his brothers, right? But God used Joseph, elevated Joseph to rule Egypt and to reconcile his brothers and to give life to his brothers. Do you, do you get that? how that worked? Moses rejected by his people, right? So Moses, before he flew, uh, flew away, do you guys remember the story? He saw an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite, so he killed the Egyptian, and then the next day he sees two Israelites 
fighting with each other. So he comes and he's like, guys, you guys are both Israelites, your brothers. Why are you fighting against each other? And then one of the Israelites turns to him and is like, so what are you going to kill me? Like he killed the Egyptian guy. And so then Moses realizes, he thought that the Israelites would rise up and realize that Moses was trying to rescue them. But he realizes the Israelites don't trust him and might turn against him. And, and so he flees from Egypt. Do you get what, that story? But God raises him up to rule as a judge for the life of the Israelites, even though he was rejected by them. So there's a theme here. What is Stephen doing? He's trying to show that Jesus is in that same line. Jesus was rejected by the Jews. He was killed by the Jews, actually. But God has raised him up and elevated him. He's ascended as ruler of the world for the sake of the people who rejected him, for the sake of his enemies. So it's not this dichotomy of evil people over here and then Jesus over here. It's this dichotomy of people who rejected, Jesus is elevated before the sake of the rejected. Do you get, and that's kind of what Stephen is now entering into. Um, and, and what Stephen is doing here in this longer speech uh, is what Peter and the apostles had been doing earlier through the earlier chapters of Acts, but in a more focused and sustained way that again brings in the entire story of Israel. He's explaining that Israel's story, which the Jewish people understood as a story of salvation, is actually a story of rebellion. So how many of you guys have seen Star Wars, right? If you've seen Star Wars? All right, cool. Um, I didn't want to ruin it, but there's this point where Luke Skywalker has understood ever since he was taken in for training by Obi-Wan Kenobi that Anakin Skywalker, his dad, had been killed by Darth Vader. And so Obi-Wan tells him, you know, Luke, Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader killed your father, Anakin Skywalker. All right, so that's the story Luke was told, and it gives him the sense of purpose when he's facing the Empire. But we all know what happens in The Empire Strikes Back, right? Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker are dueling. Darth Vader cuts off Luke Skywalker's hand. It falls. Uh, Darth Vader says, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke says, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. And then Vader says, no, Luke. I am your father. And so what's going on here? The, it, it totally transforms his understanding of what his identity was and what the story was about what happened to his father, Anakin Skywalker. The Jews had this understanding of the world based off of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The entire world is corrupt. The entire world is in slavery to sin. But Israel has been bought out of bondage by God. It's been freed from sin. Yeah, it's messed up here and there, but God, and God is disciplined when they messed up. But the point is that Israel is going to be purified, it's going to be glorified, it's going to, Israel is going to be made great again, and Israel is going to rule the world. And Stephen actually says, no, that's not the story. What Stephen says is, the story of Israel is not a story of glory apart from the world. The story of Israel is actually a microcosm. God was showing through one people the story of the entire humankind. Israel's story is representative of the story of humankind. It's a story of how all of us fail in sin. It shows the depths of our slavery to sin. Even when God chooses a special people and gives himself over and over to show how steadfast his love is, they turn away from him. They mess up over and over and over again. They fail over and over and over again. That's what the story of Israel is trying to show us, the depth of human sin that needs to be totally transformed because God is showing us that the human heart is a factory of idols. Even the good things God gave Israel, like the law and the temple, became idols, ways of excluding other people, ways of rejecting other people, ways of oppressing other people. 
And there's, there's a lesson for all of us in that. We all come from churches with good traditions, right? We all find meaning in these traditions. But there's a danger for us to make those good traditions into ultimate things. Because if it becomes an ultimate thing, then it's going to become that moon blocking out the sun. It's going to be an idol. And the real story of God is the story of how God in Jesus smashes our idols out of love so that we can begin to see and know him. Stephen is out here smashing the idols of Jewish identity, and he sounds extremely harsh. But look at what was motivating his message. Was it hatred for the Jews? Did he hate the Jews? Let's reread the end of the passage, verses 54 to 60. Uh, When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the Jews covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. There are a number of really cool things happening in this passage, but I want to highlight just two. First, Stephen says, look. Now, the people in the temple can't see what Stephen is seeing, but Stephen sees the heavenly throne room, and he sees Jesus Christ standing as the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And again, what we're talking about, this is just talking about how Stephen is the new temple as a believer. Uh, he is the place where heaven and earth are overlapping, and he, he's given new eyes to see reality. Because what's happening here is that there is a heaven, the, Stephen is being tried by an earthly court, right? But Stephen sees that at the same moment, there is a heavenly court superimposed on the earthly court. And where Stephen is being condemned by the earthly court, there's a heavenly court finding in his favor at the exact same time and actually condemning the human judges. Uh, This is something that, again, Peter and Paul later pick up and write about in their letters, that Christians are the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, because now we can see both dimensions of reality. When we see evil and injustice, when we see the faces of the oppressed, the accused, and the destitute, we, we also see King Jesus there sitting in judgment. That's what a Christian is. And second, the second thing I just want to highlight from this passage when Stephen is being killed is that as the mob rushes to stone Stephen to death because of what they claim is his blasphemy, what does, Jesus, what does Stephen do when appealing to King Jesus? King Jesus, avenge me? King Jesus, throw down lightning bolts to destroy these people? Consume them in fire? No, Jesus, Stephen prays to Jesus, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. As the rocks are flying at him and his flesh is being broken apart, like, have you ever thought about being stoned to death? What that would mean? The pain that means? And as his bones are being crushed, he's praying, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That's the transformation that happens to us when the old idols are smashed, when the moon is no longer blocking the sun. I know the eclipse looked cool, right? It looked cool when the moon was blocking the sun. But think about if we had to live like that every single day. We'd be living in darkness, right? We need the sun to have light. That's the transformation that happens when the uh, the idols are smashed. Our hearts are set free. Now, I I know a lot of what I was saying did not really make contact with your hearts because our idols today are not the law and the temple. Those are abstract concepts to us. It's not the Ten Commandments. That's not your idol. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe Libin is weird. Um, 
But the human heart is still a factory of idols. Do you get that? There's the idol of white supremacy. There's the idol of American greatness. There's the idol of Malu pride, Martho pride, CSI pride. There's the idol of the American dream. Look into your own heart. I don't know what your idol is. I can tell you that our culture, what is it more obsessed with? That's probably a clue with what our idols are. We're obsessed more and more with looking hot, right? We're obsessed more and more with feeling accepted, uh, being desirable, not being alone. I think these are all clues to what our idols are. But what I want you to see is that any idol, even an idol given to us, a good thing given to us from God, like the law of Moses or the temple in Jerusalem, any idol that, that takes away from us a picture of what God is like makes us into insecure, selfish, and ultimately violent people. Do you see that? That's what happened to the Jews. We don't get violent. You may think I'm not a violent person, but you don't really get violent until that identity formed by that idol is threatened. Like when those white supremacists started to see more brown people around, that's when they started getting violent because the identity is threatened. That's the type of people the idol is forming all of us into. Let's not think that we're more holy or greater than the white supremacist people. We all have idols. And if our core identity is threatened, we will become violent. Because the idol is what's ruling us. So what is the type of person that Jesus sets us free into becoming? He sets us free into becoming someone like Stephen. Do you get that? It's into someone who looks like Jesus himself. Because Stephen's prayer, forgiving his enemies as he's dying, echoes Jesus' last prayer, forgiving his enemies. Because do you guys remember? What does Jesus pray as he's dying at the cross? as the elders and the mob and the soldiers are mocking him, as he's hanging from a tree and watch him die. What does he pray? He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of beauty that Jesus draws us into. And the truth of it is, all of us recognize, hey, that is beautiful. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us want that. We don't want to be like that because that means entering into pain. That means entering into suffering for people who hate you. We're scared to live like that. We trust our idols. We think that we can manage and control our idols. That's a lie. But we think we, if, if we live under the old idols, we get to decide what's going on. That's a lie. In the end, you don't control the idols. The idols manage and control you. You live under the idol of looking hot and lust. That lust is going to destroy you. I promise. It's not going to happen in a year or two years, but it's going to happen. It's going to destroy you. You live for only your parental approval that's your idol, it's going to destroy you. You live for wealth or success or achievement, that idol is going to destroy you. Grades, it's going to destroy you. In the end, the idols manage and control you, and they make you into a monster. Of this, I'm absolutely convinced. The only person who can transform you into a person of the kind of love and beauty you see on the cross, the beauty of Stephen, uh, the, who speaks the truth out of love for his people and continues to love them even as, he re, as they reject and kill him, the only person who can transform you into that kind of beautiful person is Jesus Christ. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And the only way you can be transformed is by the way of the cross, which means that your old self, your old ambitions, your old idols need to die, and you need to rise into the new life of the Spirit, which he freely gives you, but which we don't really want because we're afraid of what that would look like. The cost is heavy. As Jesus says, the road is narrow, but the prize is amazing because the prize is a life actually worth living, a life whose blood gives life to the rest of the world. Let's close our eyes in prayer.
Heavenly Father, uh, we just pray that you plant these truths deep within us, uh, that they take root in fertile soil, and that they spring up and bear fruit for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand and say the uh, Apostles' Creed together, please.